You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. China. Never before have so many political leaders in Europe and the United States been talking about the Middle Kingdom. There's a growing consensus in Germany that China represents a significant and qualitatively different challenge than Berlin had long assumed. A similar reassessment has been happening for quite a few years in the U.S., but in a much more public fashion, and it has accelerated under the Trump administration. Let's look for a moment at how the United States and Europe describe China in their official assessments. China is the first country named in the U.S. national security strategy, which goes on to state, China and Russia challenge American power, influence, and interests, attempting to erode American security and prosperity. They are determined to make economies less free and less fair, to grow their militaries, and to control information and data to repress their societies and expand their influence. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Atlantic, the European Commission just released its China strategy in March. Here's what it says. There is a growing appreciation in Europe that the balance of challenges and opportunities presented by China has shifted. That EU strategy goes on to cite areas of cooperation with Beijing, but it pointedly calls China, quote, an economic competitor in the pursuit of technological leadership and a systemic rival promoting alternative models of governance, unquote. Germany's industry has a similar view, by the way, with the Federation of German Industries issuing a major report early this year calling China a systemic competitor. You regular listeners of the Zeitgeist out there will recall episode five when we talked with one of the leading minds behind that report, Dr. Stefan Meyer. Newcomers, go back and have a listen. So, you can go down the list of issues, the treatment of Western firms in China, Beijing's investment in critical technologies and industries, the spread of debt and Chinese political influence through the Belt and Road Initiative, the emergence of a Chinese surveillance state, major human rights problems such as in Xinjiang, and China's military buildup, including in the contested South China Sea. It looks like there's a growing convergence of views between the U.S. and Europe, and that would seem to open the door to greater cooperation not a new Cold War, few people want another one of those, but a transatlantic effort to set priorities, develop compatible policies, and carry them out in a coordinated way. Yet, a transatlantic strategy with regard to China is elusive. Do the U.S., Germany, and the rest of Europe have the commonality of interest and the necessary trust and confidence in each other to make China a top policy priority? Or will that remain out of reach, like the old saying in the U.S. about my favorite sport, that soccer is the sport of the future, and it always will be. Today on The Zeitgeist, we talk to a person uniquely positioned to illuminate things. Noah Barkin is a journalist with a quarter century of experience who has been working in Germany for many years, including with Reuters. He is just completing a research fellowship here at AICGS, and he joins us today. I'd like to start with a quote today. How the West copes with China's rise is the biggest global challenge alongside climate change. That quotation comes from Noah Barkin, who's our guest today on The Zeitgeist. Noah, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. 
And Noah has been a research fellow here through our program with the uh, German Academic Exchange Service, uh, and he's been working on transatlantic policies toward China. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. So we're really glad to have you with us. Good to be here. And if I can organize our discussion maybe around a few quotes that you, I know, have uh, drawn on in in your research, uh, the first one uh, I would start with is uh, is this one. A lot of Europeans are worried about being forced to choose. Who told you that and what was on their minds? Yeah, that's a quote from uh, an official in the French finance ministry that I spoke to before I came to Washington, actually. Um, but I've heard something similar from a lot of people uh, in European capitals, people in Brussels, uh, people in Paris, and, and people in uh, Berlin. I think there's a real sense uh, or a real fear that Europe is going to get caught in the middle of this U.S.-China conflict, um, that they will be forced to choose between the U.S. and China, and we're already seeing that dynamic uh, play out in the 5G uh, debate, the debate over Huawei. Um, so uh, the last thing that they want is, 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 is to have to choose in a sort of Cold War fashion um, between the U.S. and China, especially a country like Germany. I'm based in Berlin. Uh, Germany's two biggest trading partners are the U.S. and China. Uh, they really don't want to have to choose between their two biggest trading partners. But there's also no denying that things, that views are changing. And here I want to come to the second uh, quote, and that is, China is set to become the subject of the 21st century on both sides of the Atlantic. Yes, that's a quote from Heiko Maas, the uh, German foreign minister who, and he said that in Washington uh, at the, just ahead of the uh, meeting of NATO foreign ministers, uh, it was about six weeks ago, um, Yes, I think there's a realization uh, in Europe uh, that this is going to be a, a major issue in the transatlantic relationship. It's a major issue for Europe uh, itself. Uh, we've seen a pretty dramatic shift, uh, certainly by European standards, a, a very rapid uh, change in, 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 in the way that uh, Europeans view uh, or European politicians, European leaders, European countries view China. I think uh, in the past, uh, China was uh, often seen as uh, a big market with fat growth rates uh, where uh, you could do great business. Um, now, increasingly, and I think the Trump administration has a little bit to do with it, but not is not entirely responsible for this, uh, now there's growing skepticism uh, about China's uh, state-run uh, capitalist model. Um, there's concern about Chinese acquisitions uh, in Europe. There's concern about how European firms are being treated in China. Um, there's concern about uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, the debt uh, that countries are taking on um, in, in connection with that and the political influence that, that breeds. Um, and so along a, a whole range of issues, 5G is another one that's gotten a lot of attention recently. Uh, there's, there, there's a great deal more concern in Europe uh, about China, the way China is um, developing. And uh, in a sense, this mirrors the development here in the U.S. 
with the Trump administration who came in in 2017 and issued a very tough national security strategy uh, which talked about big power competition uh, with China and Russia. Well, and you are ideally uh, placed to uh, to observe what's happening on both sides uh, of the Atlantic, because as you said, you're uh, based in Berlin. You've been a journalist for 25 years and spend a lot of time uh, not only in Germany, but elsewhere I- in Europe. And, uh, and so I-, I guess the thing that I would like to touch on first, uh, you- you've-, you've outlined some of the things driving concerns in Europe about China. And as you say, they are very similar to a lot of the concerns here. There's also a, an overlay of, of military and security concern in the United States, which is much more uh, intense because the United States is a, an Asian power in, in a way that uh, Europe uh, isn't and European countries aren't. Um, but otherwise, there seems to be a lot of commonality. Yet at the same time, up to now, uh, the United States and Europe haven't really succeeded in forging some kind of coherent policy uh, on Europe. And s- I'm, I'm curious how you would describe some of the impediments on the European side first um, mm. toward, uh, toward doing that. What, what, what's standing in the way? Well, I would argue, and I hear this, uh, I've, I've heard this uh, people saying this a lot in, in Europe, you know, we've, uh, we share the U.S. concerns about China. Uh, why can't we work with the Trump administration? Why are they refusing to work with us? Why are they attacking us on trade at the same time? Um, but I, I would argue that, uh, you know, although people are saying this, uh, I don't know if Europe really wants to, uh, to develop a sort of common front against uh, China, a very public uh, united front against China. Um, I think uh, Europe has benefited from the fact that the Trump administration is in a, in a, in a pretty intense trade conflict with China, um, and they've been able to wring concessions from the Chinese. Say, uh, say more about that. How does, how does the U.S. trade war with China benefit Europe? Well, I think in the long run it may not benefit Europe because uh, I think if two, the two biggest economies in the world are going uh, are involved in a trade war, then there's going to be a collateral damage and, and that Europe will suffer. But uh, in Europe's relation, relationship with China, we've seen, uh, we, we've seen that this conflict has, has sort of created this dynamic in which China is very keen to avoid... Uh, Europe and the U.S. Uh, binding together uh, against them. Uh, and so they've been willing to make certain concessions to the Europeans in recent months. Um, they've uh, concessions on, on German, for example, German companies operating in, in China. Um, BASF uh, has been allowed to open a, a, a new chemicals plant, um, 100% owned. Um, BMW has been allowed because to. often Chinese China forces uh, international companies to pick a Chinese partner. Um, That's right. In the past, they have, and and uh, the car sector, for example, which of course is very important for a country like Germany, 
um, they had to they, they could never have a majority in in a joint venture but BMW uh, a number of months ago was given the green light to take to go go up to 75 percent I think in their joint venture in China uh, over time so we've seen we've seen uh, China kind of reach out to European companies uh, European countries um, uh, I, I guess in an attempt to to prevent uh, a sort of Europe and the U.S. Uh, united front against them. So there's a tactical advantage that European countries or individual European companies might get out of this U.S. trade conflict I think with the China. Europeans, in the short run, the Europeans have been able to wring some concessions from the Chinese. Whether this, whether this conflict is a good thing for Europe in the long run is, is another question. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I think uh, uh, there are uh, there are of course a lot of things that stand in the way of of a united uh, front between beyond um, beyond beyond the issues that we've already talked about. I mean, is is there also you know we've we're we're as we talk today we are less than one day away from the potential imposition or raising uh, of U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods mm-hmm. from the 10% level to the 25% mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody really knows how that's going to turn out. If we did, we'd all be on the phone to our stockbrokers, I guess. But but the um, you know does that also generate some trepidation among America's European allies, the fact that the United States is is really um, you know um, going to the wall with China, but might stop short. Uh, in other words, is unpredictability in U.S. policy also a problem in uh, making a transatlantic uh, approach to China stick? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that uh, uh, the unpredictability of the Trump administration and Donald Trump. Uh, in particular, uh, has created huge tensions uh, in the transatlantic relationship uh, o- over trade, uh, over other issues like Iran. Uh, in Germany's case, Nord Stream 2, uh, that pipeline and, and defense spending issues like that. So uh, those tensions, of course, make it, uh, are not very conducive to uh, forging any sort of a common agenda between Washington and European capitals uh, on an issue uh, like China. And, yeah. Well, that kind of gets does doesn't that get at the heart of at least President Trump's approach to things? That maybe other members of his senior team have different views, but the president has said many times that he thinks unpredictability is an American advantage. Um, and uh, you know, and that is a huge break with the tradition of American foreign policy since the end of the Second World War, which has been built on stable institutions and a, um, a predictable U.S. commitment to them. Um, so you seem to be saying that, uh, that, that this administration's approach you know, runs directly counter to the stability that Europeans feel they need. Yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, we've seen a num- on a number of issues. Uh, we've seen this unpredictability, and 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 that sows, uh, I think, distrust in the transatlantic relationship. And on the, on the specific issue of China, for example, we saw uh, Trump uh, reverse a course on ZTE, the Chinese uh, telecommunications company. That was that was last year, I believe. Um, and, and we've also seen him tweet out after putting after the, his administration was putting huge pressure on the Europeans uh, to um, exclude uh, the Chinese company Huawei from their 5G networks. 
he sent out a tweet uh, a couple months ago, which essentially said uh, we shouldn't be banning anyone uh, from from U.S. telecommunications networks. So uh, there's a there's a sort of credibility issue which uh, has uh, sapped uh, trust, I think, in in the Trump administration. And I think uh, in in Europe there isn't that co- you need you, you need a certain amount of confidence to uh, to work with uh, a partner on an issue as big as China. Um, and that confidence really isn't there at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but but let's say l- let's leave that aside for for a moment, um, and that'll bring us to uh, the next uh, the next quote. A transatlantic agenda on China is a worthy goal to pursue, but I don't know if we have the luxury of time to pin our hopes on a joint response. Who's that? That is uh, that comes from a conversation I had with Larry Diamond. He's a, a, an academic uh, at Stanford University uh, who's, uh, who's written about China, was, was active in, in producing this report that the Hoover Institution put out, uh, I believe, late last year, uh, looking at Chinese influence in the U.S. Um, yeah, I think that points to a real issue in this relationship. Europe has shifted pretty dramatically on China uh, over the past year. We've seen a number of steps that they've taken uh, introducing an, uh, an investment screening mechanism. Uh, uh, we saw a very tough uh, a paper from the European Commission uh, back in March, which labeled China a strategic rival on some issues. Um, so a lot is happening, but uh, I think there's an impatience uh, here in the U.S. Uh, people don't necessarily, here in uh, the people here in Washington that I've spoken to in the administration and also uh, experts outside the administration express real frustration with the pace of uh, of the policy change in Europe on China, even though I think by European standards it's been going pretty quickly. It also obscures the fact that it took the United States a while to get to this point we're in. Uh, so, it, you know, if it took us a, a length of time, you have to expect that other countries uh, have at least a similar process to go through. But, mm-hmm. but let's say we had the trust, mm-hmm. and let's say time wasn't the factor. What, what, mm-hmm. what, are, what would be the, the central elements of a transatlantic approach to China, um, th- and 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 then we can talk about how realistic they might be. But what w- what would make it up? Well, I think we've seen um, uh, th- there has been uh, one must say a pretty active dialogue going on uh, at the lower levels, not at the top level. Uh, we're not talking about um, uh, John Bolton or or uh, or Donald Trump or or Mike Pompeo. Uh, but we're talking about the people below them, and they have been talking with the Europeans um, uh, last year about investment screening. So uh, the U.S. changed its legislation on CFIUS to to uh, uh, to harden up uh, their ability to uh, intervene when Chi- the Chinese companies are investing in strategic or, or any US. international uh, or any or actually. any. I mean, it was certainly directed at China, but you're right that it it it, it could. Could be any any uh, any foreign country that uh, whose investment is seen as 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 risky. Um, so that that has been the fo- that's one area where they've been talking for a while. Another area uh, where they've been talking, uh, especially in the last few months, is on forging some kind of common response to the China's Belt Belt and Road Initiative. 
the EU unveiled uh, its connectivity strategy back in October. That was seen as a response to Belt and Road. Uh, That's a remarkably ambiguous word, connectivity. Connectivity. Even my time as a diplomat, I you know I was always. It's not sexy. Uh, yeah, but uh, but but what what is what does the connectivity strategy mean? If I could interrupt well, you there. Well, this is about this is about uh, offering an alternative to to Belt and Road, which is essentially uh, Chinese companies going in and. Uh, uh, helping developing countries, you know, from from Asia to Europe, even to Africa, uh, develop infrastructure, uh, big infrastructure projects. So um, we're talking about bridges and highways. Um, so and, it's transportation, communications, those kinds right. of things, and it's okay. kind of spread to telecommunications and uh, you know, five G as well. So, and do the Europeans have much to offer in comparison to the Chinese? Well, I think th neither the Americans nor the uh, the Europeans want to m are trying to match China sort of uh, dollar for dollar mm -hmm. on this. Um, but I think what they do want to do is because Belt and Road has been criticized for uh, putting these these countries, these developing countries that take Chinese loans in in serious debt. Uh, the so-called debt trap. And what they want to do is they want to make these contracts more, they want to develop standards which make these contracts more transparent, uh, which ensure that these, these, um, uh, these development projects are sustainable, that they respect certain labor standards, certain environmental standards. And uh, so they're working on that together. There's the EU connectivity strategy also in October. There was the Build Act here in Washington. And both strategies have 60 billion, 60 billion euros in the case of uh, the EU and 60 billion dollars in the case of, uh, of, the, um, of the US uh, program um, to invest in, in projects. And, and the, uh, the EU connectivity ambassador was here in Washington last month talking with the Americans. Uh, US officials were in Brussels back in January. So they're... They've agreed to meet every two months. This is a highly complex issue, mm -hmm. uh, and it's very hard to coordinate. But there is a bit of momentum behind that. Um, and so I would say um, that is an area perhaps where the transatlantic uh, partners can, can start. And there are, there are a lot of impediments to this, but that's an area to start and then maybe build, build out the co cooperation. Mm -hmm. Um, what about, uh, of course, trade is uh, is the thing on everyone's minds uh, at the moment. Is there scope for the United States and Europe to have a cooperative approach on trade issues that relate to China? Well, we know that the the U.S. Uh, under under Trump pulled out of TPP, which was the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade um, Partnership, which. Uh, was seen in many quarters as an, uh, a, a sort of an answer to, to China in the region. Um, but I think on trade, that there are huge obstacles here, of course, because the U.S. has threatened, uh, well, has, it's imposed uh, steel and aluminum tariffs on, on, on Europe and Europe and other countries, um, and it's threatening to impose auto tariffs. So this is th this could explode. You know, if these auto tariffs come, they could explode cooperation on trade uh, completely. The, the fundamental point being, 
the United States can't be punishing Europe um, on the one hand and expecting Europe to make sacrifices uh, in cooperation with Washington uh, on the other hand. That's right. That's right. It seems like a fundamentally uh, basic um, uh, principle. It's um, it's pretty basic. Um, so would yeah. you would you draw from that the conclusion that the United States uh, administration is not interested in cooperation with Europe, or that it's just not willing to make it a high enough priority to uh, to adjust its policies to make it possible? Yeah, I think one of the one of the criticisms from outside the administration has been that it doesn't have an overall strategy, or it hasn't set real priorities in the transatlantic relationship. So um, so the Trump administration, uh, there's a compelling argument, I think, of, as, as you discussed uh, earlier, uh, um, for uh, forming some sort of transatlantic, um, a more structured transatlantic dialogue on, on China, because China is obviously at the very top of the U.S. Uh, agenda at the moment. A criticism of the Trump administration has been that it hasn't prioritized uh, different issues in the transatlantic relationship. So China is an area where one would think uh, the U.S. would want to cooperate with Europe. China is at the very top of the U.S. foreign policy agenda. Uh, big power competition. It was uh, the focus of the national security strategy. Um, but at the same time, the U.S. is going after uh, Europe on trade, going after it on uh, Iran, the JCPOA, uh, going after countries like Germany on defense spending and uh, uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So uh, it's hard to forge cooperation in one area when you're going after your partner in the other area. And that's, that's been a central criticism uh, I think the Europeans, uh, on some level, would like to work with uh, with the Trump administration uh, on on China, but uh, but that, of course, makes it hard. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me move to two other quotes. First one is: "The U.S. is out to beat, contain, confront China. They have a much more belligerent attitude. We believe they will waste a lot of energy and not be successful." Who said that to you? Yeah, that was a senior uh, official in Brussels who will remain nameless. Protecting um, your sources is an important journalistic principle that you've learned well. Yes, but I think that goes to the heart of the problem. Although I think the U.S. and Europe share a lot of the concerns about uh, about China, um, there is a real uh, difference in 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 how they view in how they view this challenge. Because the U.S., of course, is an, uh, incum- the incumbent superpower. It sees a threat to its, uh, to its uh, hegemony. And uh, e- there's a sense of, of real sort of urgency to this issue, uh, almost panic on some issues like 5G that I've sensed here. Uh, and as we've seen in the trade negotiations, a, a, a sense that you can change China's economic model right, mm-hmm. from the outside. I think in Europe, even though they share a lot of the concerns, they really want to, they want to push back, but at the same time they want to engage with, with China on certain issues like climate change. Uh, you know, China supports the JCPOA with Iran. Um, so Euro- Europe is taking a much more balanced approach. They don't want to push, uh, push China into a corner uh, and they don't want to contain China. They don't believe you can contain China the way the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, believes. Next quote. Europe is almost on a different planet. It is very hard to have a strategic conversation with them. 
Yeah, that is came from someone uh, close to the Trump administration who will also remain nameless. But um, I've heard this frustration uh, in many of the conversations uh, I've been having over the past uh, few weeks. Um, there's a sense that, uh, and I think the, the focus is really on Germany, um, a sense that there's a lack of strategic thinking. Uh, that, um, uh, And this is coupled with this this real sense of urgency in dealing with China that people have here in uh, in in Washington, um, they feel that Europe isn't moving faster and fast enough. They feel that uh, Europe is not uh, seeing the bigger picture, um, and they see uh, they while they admit that Europe is is plotting ahead, uh, they want they want this to happen much more fastly. Mm-hmm. And I think the uh, the issue where this all comes together is 5G. Uh, they really worry that uh, European countries are going to uh, include Huawei, the Chinese tele- uh, telecoms equipment supplier, in their 5G networks. And we've seen a whole range of threats. Uh, Mike Pompeo was in was in London yesterday, um, uh, warning the Brits against uh, including Huawei as they as they apparently plan to do in the periphery of their network and telling them this is just not on and uh, it's going to affect intelligence sharing within the five eyes, uh, uh, intelligence alliance, and, and more broadly. Mm-hmm. So if, if we boil this down, you've got Europeans who look across the Atlantic Ocean and say, we'd like to cooperate with you guys, but we're not sure you have figured out what your priorities are. And so we're, we don't have the level of trust to, to work uh, carefully with you, or work closely with you. And then on the opposite side, you have Americans who look back at Europe and say, well, you guys recognize there's a problem, but you're not really willing to do anything about it. Does that kind of sum up uh, the, the, the frustrations yeah. that we have? And, and are we getting closer, I guess? I mean, there are always frustrations and frictions in the U.S.-European relationship. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've uh, observed that for decades in your work. Certainly as a diplomat, it's something I lived with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. We always have different views. The question is, are you getting to a place where you can engage more constructively and more effectively? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the risk is that, uh, well, certainly now, from the European perspective, the U.S. is, is, is simply, um, in terms of its China policy, um, too much of a bully. Um, it's it's the sense of urgency that they have here is is not reflected uh, in Europe. Um, and on the U.S. side, there's this sense that the Euro- Europeans are slow. Uh, the Europeans uh, don't have that sense of urgency, and that time is of the essence. You know, we need to act now. We need to act now to uh, prevent uh, the Chinese from getting into our next generation mobile networks. We need to act now to push back against Belt and Road. We need to act now uh, on uh, China's unfair trade practices. Uh, the U.S. would uh, probably prefer to, uh, as we've seen, uh, they don't have the patience to work on a reform of the WTO. They, they, they think the system's broken and they want to look at other solutions. That's another area of, of disagreement. Um, but if you, if you take a step back and you say to yourself, um, you know, this is going to be uh, a defining issue in U.S. foreign policy. It's going to be well beyond the Trump administration. Well beyond the Trump whether it's a one-term or a two-term That's administration. Right. That's yeah. right. Um, and it's a huge issue for Europe as well. 
uh, one would think that over time, uh, if the two can learn to live with each other's, the difference in each other's, the pace, uh, and in the, in, the, in, the, in the general view of, uh, of whether you can contain or, or, or whether you should engage with China, if they can, if, if they can overcome those, those differences, uh, then this is an issue that they can work on. Um, my sense is that we're never going to get to the point where we have a, an overall uh, common agenda, which you can uh, read on a, uh, on a piece of paper. But on a, certainly on an ad hoc basis, I think w- one would expect this, this cooperation, uh, this transatlantic cooperation on China to increase over time. And I think if you get a a Democratic uh, president coming in uh, after Trump, whether it's in two or four years or six years' time, then I, I think there's a there's certainly a potential for that to pick up. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, as you as you say, you know, this this is um, at least in the view of many um, people, including in the Trump administration, China's growing international role, economically, politically, also in security terms, uh, is the defining um, uh, issue for the coming decades. And so it is one that is going to be with us. For the last 70 years, the United States and Europe have found a way to work together on most of the big international issues, not always, but usually. And, and so this is, is just the start of, uh, of that process of finding a common agenda and making sure we've got the, the tools um, uh, to implement it. So uh, in that regard, uh, I, I'm sure we'll be coming back to many of these ideas in the future, Noah, and we're really grateful that you have spent a couple of months here with us as a colleague. We're really grateful for that. And uh, we, we really thank you for the discussion today. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.